Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm happy to welcome Michael Jex. Michael has written dozens of books. They are set in the Middle Ages. They are murder mysteries, and many of them are about the Knights Templar. Michael, thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot for asking me. Michael, you've written so many books, I couldn't count them on your website. I believe your Templar series has 32 titles. Your first book was in 1995. How many books have you written? What's the final count? Uh, it's 50 published now. Um there were 32 in the Templar series. I've got number 33 waiting to be edited. Uh, I'm currently working on The Sniper and two other books, which I hope will be snapped up before too long. I've got a modern-day series, The Art of Murder, which I've just literally this morning sent off to the publisher, which is great book. I've just output from Scrivener, oddly enough. Uh, and um, I've got... A Tudor series. I've got a trilogy about English archers in the Hundred Years' War. So I've I've sort of nipped around the historical bit. I've even done one in 1920s Shanghai, which is with a publisher now. So I, I've sort of nipped around from early medieval all the way up to the present day. And uh, I don't know. Next time I'll probably write science fiction. It's got to be a bit more interesting. Go the up opposite direction. <laughs> do you have a twin? How do you do all this? <laughs> I mean, 50 books since 1995, so that's not quite two a year. And I'm guessing in the beginning you were doing them a little bit more slowly. How many books do you write a year now? It's two a year, generally. Yeah, it, it does vary. I mean, um, I was writing two books a year quite happily back in 94, 95, 96, because I wrote that first book in 94, obviously. It was published in early 95. Um, but as soon as we got kids, then a certain slowness sort of crept in and uh, the number of books per annum did reduce. And then I, I also got to be chairman of the Crime Writers Association over here. And that must have cost me about three books because <laughs> there was just so many things to do at the time. <laughs> How do you do it? I mean, so many writers will spend a year, they'll they'll spend six months on the first draft and then a couple more months, and it seems like a struggle. If you're writing this much, do you just write, are your first drafts final drafts? Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing is that I'll, I'll tend to, if I'm writing a novel, say 120,000 words, it'll take me two and a half to three months to write it. I won't be working from a a synopsis directly usually i sometimes i'll have a synopsis for a contract but usually i'll 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 take Stephen king's approach or ian rankin's approach and i'll start with a blank page and i'll see where the characters take me which is much more interesting as an author anyway uh but i tend to find that um if it's a reasonable length book like that it'll take about two and a half to three months and i'll be typing up every morning before I start working, following on with what I was doing the day before, I'll read through what I did the day before. So I'm editing every day what I did previously. And then when I get to about halfway through the book, I'll tend then to stop and refresh my memory from the very beginning of the book all the way through till the current point. And I'll be editing and amending, adding in new red herrings and doing all that kind of thing so that when I start writing it again, it's a much cleaner, um, more finished product already. So it, 
I tend to find that I don't write an entire book, go back and edit it, because basically I hate editing. I really enjoy the creative. <laughs> I love sitting there and typing. Uh, I've got all these characters shouting at me in my head, and you know, you can sit down, you can write what they're telling you to write, and it, it's much more enjoyable that way. The editing part, I just, uh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I've talked to some writers on the podcast who talk about the first draft being crap, that the first draft, you just get the words out, yet you're doing the exact opposite and you seem to be more efficient than them. Well, I'm doing it, but I'm splitting my day up so that one third, the morning third, is spent actually doing the editing and then the other two thirds of the enjoyable bit. So it rather than doing everything and enjoying myself for a month and a half, two months, and then putting myself through three months of purgatory, trying to do edit the damn thing, I, if I edit in the morning and then carry on working that way, it all ties together much more easily for me, and it, it makes the writing process a lot more enjoyable. Of course, I've then got the editor's comments come back, and the copy editor's comments, and then the proof editor's sure. comments, so I still get all of that grief later. But so what are you doing about 2,000 words a day? Uh, I tend to average about five. Wow. Do you write all day long? Yeah. Oh, okay. A lot of writers say, okay, I start when I get up and I write until lunchtime or early afternoon, then I stop and do something else, editing, letting their brain relax. Whereas you're just a stackanovist here. I, I really enjoy writing. I love it. So I get up, I come in here, I sit down, clear my... Uh, I've got a dog, so I'll tend to walk the dog at some point in the morning. And while I'm walking the dog, I'll do my emails. But apart from that, I'm at my desk and I'll be writing. It's um, It seems like the natural thing to do. But I don't know about you, but I, I started off as a salesman com selling computers back in the 80s. I was going to ask because on your website, you say that early in 1984, you realized that you'd already worked for 13 companies of which all but the last had ceased trading. So what were the 13 companies? All selling computers? Can I, can I can I just say that um, the 13th has gone bust since? Okay. So, yeah, they haven't broken my track okay. record. <laughs> but they did have the indecent cheek to fire me, which I thought was disgraceful. All the others went bust while I was working for them. And this was all selling computers? Yeah. So I spent five years at one company, WordPlex, and I spent five years at Wang Laboratories. Um, I spent a year with IBM's biggest software house in the UK. Uh, but they all went. Right, Wang went from 35,000 staff worldwide to three, I think it was, in the space of a weekend. <laughs> so you were always fascinated by history. How did this yeah. history fascination develop? Well, I think it's probably because my birthday is the 11th of November, so I was always interested in warfare. Right. Um, it seemed like a natural thing to be interested in, but then... And as you can see, I've got swords. Yes. And Michael is pointing to a sword on a shelf behind him, which I noticed when we started the Zoom call. He's got another Civil War sword leaning on the on the floor on the shelf. He has many swords. And shotguns hanging on the wall and an assegai. And all of the books behind me here are my research ones, apart from three shelves. There's the books I've published. But uh, most of them are warfare, the history of warfare, weapons, um, and all that kind of thing. And I guess it was just an interest I had from when I was a schoolboy and I first heard about King Arthur. And the idea of knights in armour going out on quests was a very appealing one. And then I read The Hobbit and at the age of 11, I got my hands on The Lord of the Rings and that just sparked that sort of an interest in uh, Saxon and medieval worlds. 
and uh, I, it stayed with me. Uh, well, it has stayed with me all my life. Uh, I just love all of the um, the culture and the history and the um, aspects of chivalry and honour. And I also love books like Terry Jones's fabulous book, Chaucer's Knight, um, which... Terry Jones from Monty Python. That's right. But he was a medievalist when he was at university, when he uh, met the other Monty Python crew. And the main thing about him was um, he always wanted to write a book about Chaucer's Knight because, you know, you've got Chaucer's Canterbury Tales where he talks about these characters and he builds them up and then he demolishes them, all of them. Except for Chaucer's Knight, the knight, everyone has said ever since they first published Chaucer's books, said, oh, yes, but the knight is an example of a perfect, gentle, honourable knight. Well, Terry Jones rips that to shreds, which I loved, because he wasn't an honourable knight. He was a mercenary. He was a thug. He was a murderer. <laughs> he was going out um, fighting in battles when it was illegal. Um because he should have been staying at home to fight in the Hundred Years' War. But no, he was going away as a mercenary and fighting for Muslims against Christians. And so I think you read read Chaucer's Knight, and it, it just completely demolishes this idea of the perfect chivalric person. Superb book. Well, the chivalric person was a fabrication originally by the French that was meant to be a sort of a social framework, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it was very... Well, at the time, there was this belief that there was the three main groups. There were the knights and the aristocracy who were there to maintain law and order. There were the ecclesiastics who were there to protect your soul after you'd died. And then there were the rest who were basically there to support the first two. <laughs> so they invented this concept of chivalry. Um but I don't know if you've ever read Shogun, for example, by James Clavell. And in the very beginning of that, it really tells you an awful lot about chivalry when an Englishman in Japan sees a peasant who doesn't bow fast enough for a samurai who's therefore beheaded on the spot. <laughs> and that was pretty much as simplistic as the chivalric ideal was. If you weren't one of the chivalry, uh, then you didn't really have too much of a life. You were not going to be valued highly. You mentioned an interest in warfare, but medieval history is about a lot more than just warfare. It's about the way people live, and it's only in recent decades that historians have really paid attention to that. Yeah. But I always found that a bit strange. It's, it's a bit like that thing when if you hear people who believe deeply in um, the idea of reincarnation, oddly enough, they always in a previous incarnation were Napoleon or Cleopatra or... <laughs> You never find out that you were the dung clearer from the bottom end of the road, <laughs> which is why in my books I tended always to focus, all the way from Last Temper onwards, I tended to focus on the peasants and the ordinary people. I wasn't so interested in the life of the aristocracy or kings and queens. I wanted to show what life was really like for the ordinary person in, in the field. And uh, I think to an extent that's why the series got so popular. So there are several medieval Elizabethan and Tudor mystery series. Why do you think these periods are so popular? Why do you think people want to see a familiar trope, the mystery, set in the past? Good question. I, I think that to an extent it's because it is pure entertainment. 
Um, but people feel that they're getting an idea about what things were like. And you can read a murder mystery on several different levels, can't you? You can read it just as a straight entertainment without worrying about things. You can read it as a puzzle. So you're going through trying to second guess what the author's uh, got in there. I know a lot of schools in America, for example, have used my books, the earlier books in particular, um, to give students an idea about what life was like, because I do go into detail. I've, I've, I conduct a huge amount of research with all of my books to make sure that nothing is in there that's wrong. I can extrapolate sometimes. Often you can't be absolutely 100% certain about how people would have behaved, what their beliefs would have been. You can't be 100% certain about what sort of decorations they would have had in a house of a particular level. So somebody who was an upper-level peasant might have a tapestry on the walls, for example, but you've, you've got to extrapolate from what you already know. Um, but I think that many people like to go back because it was a simpler time. Was it really that much simpler? I've seen Monty Python on the Holy Grail. That didn't look simple. Yeah, but that's because of Monty Python's team. <laughs> they didn't want to find it No, easy. but just the way people lived at the time, the difficulty of life, you know, pre-medicine. Yep, but looking at it from the point of view of a reader today, I remember seeing a report that said that all of the laws that had been enacted in England from 1066 and William's invasion through till I think it was 1984 or 1986, all of them filled one corridor, one side of one corridor in the House of Commons in England. And from 86 through to the present day, which was then uh, 2015, I think, they'd already filled up the other side. There are so many new laws, so many new regulations that it is confusing. Uh, people, I think, quite like the fact that you can read a book and go back to a time when, yes, there was murder, yes, there was manslaughter, but there wasn't too much other than that. You could bash someone on the head, and if somebody died within a year and a day, then you could be prosecuted for murder. But yeah, otherwise, they were pretty much okay, and they might die because they got run over by a horse the next day anyway, so irrelevant. But it, it's a thing it's like nowadays you've got different laws on fraud, you've got different laws on embezzlement and so on. In those days, it was you nicked something. You went to his house, beat him up, stole his gold. Much more straightforward. <laughs> nowadays, you it's confusing nowadays. I mean, I've just finished my second modern day book. Well, you know, how do you figure out a nice, easy way of killing someone without using a gun? Well, in the first book, I used a gun. So in the second book, I wanted a different means. But you go back to medieval times, it's much more straightforward. Everything was a sharp, stabby thing. You know, it's, it's no, no complications, so much better. But I do think people like to hark back to a period when they think, yes, life was easier. Not, not easier as in you would live longer or everything else, but it was just more comprehensible. Nowadays, you've got fears of nuclear weapons, Putin. You've got fears of um, COVID and other... Um, world-class nasty things coming across in those days well you didn't really bother yourself with that because you had no idea so it's much more insular you've got a village somebody gets murdered it's probably someone in the village <laughs> nice and straightforward okay we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk more about medieval history and we'll try and squeeze in a couple minutes about how you use scrivener 
Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. I don't remember who said the past is a foreign country. But when I read historical novels, I think of that. I think that I'm traveling to a, an area I don't know. Now, maybe I know a bit of the history of that area, but I don't know it like you do. Mm. Well, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to the early 1300s, apart from anything else now. Um, I've studied it. so <laughs> That's a pretty specific period, isn't it? Yeah, my period is from 1314 to about 1330. Well, technically, your first Templar novel starts in 1307. Absolutely, sort of, because uh, it's actually in 1314, I think, and he's remembering what happened in 1307, which was the destruction of the poor old Templars, which was an appalling miscarriage of justice, absolutely atrocious. And the strange thing was, it was basically the Pope's propaganda and the French King's propaganda that brought it all about. And um, it was a terrible situation. I've got a lovely book here, Norman Cohen's book, on um, travesties of justice that he wrote many, many years ago. And he wrote it because he was appalled by what had happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. And obviously, with a name like Norman Cohen, I, I think he did have a Jewish background. But um, he's a brilliant guy. He's professor of history at uh, Southampton University. And he was so shocked by it, and he could he did not believe that such atrocities could have happened in the past and so he did some research and the first thing he hit upon was the Knights Templar because it was blatantly obvious if you look at the evidence that they could not have done what they were accused of and the the really fascinating thing is that the lawyer working for the French king who was uh, Guillaume de Nogoy was a lawyer who had been used by the French king before and most recent time he'd been used was when the French king was previously a bit hard up for money. And so he had hired de Nogare to write up um, some allegations against another group of people who had a lot of money, the Jews. And the allegations against the Jews were almost identical to the allegations he then laid against the Templars a few years later. It was such a successful scam the first time he tried it again. And what was shocking to me was that when I was at school back in the 70s, um, we were still being taught that the Templars were uniquely terrible people, that um, they were appalling and guilty of all these atrocious crimes. And it's literally unbelievable. You've got guys who were taken from their home at age of six or seven and taught in a knightly household how to handle weapons, how to be deeply religious. And because they were very, very religious, some of these people decided that they wanted to become warrior monks, Knights Templar. So with huge cultural training in religious aspects, 
with a massive amount of weapons training, these guys went and they were supposed to commit the most obscene and ridiculous um, anti-religious uh, acts on their first initiation ceremony. Any bloke who had gone to the Templars with his sword in hand and was then asked to wee on the Bible or something would have cut the head off the bloke who told him to do it. It's just unbelievable, literally. And then you look at some of the other allegations, and they're basically standard tropes that are taken as allegations against Jews. Just ridiculous. And it's quite clear that they were not guilty. And it, it shook me rigid when um, Tony Blair brought in a whole raft of new laws allowing for terrorist suspects to be arrested. And he did exactly what was done against the Templars. They were arrested not being able, not being told what it was they were accused of. They weren't allowed to know who had spoken against them or what the evidence was against them. They weren't allowed to know when they're supposed to have committed the crime or how. They were allowed to know nothing at all. It's exactly the same as what happened to the Templars. And it's absolutely disgraceful that, that was allowed to happen 800, 700, 800 years on. That's my little soapbox. I've kicked it out of the way now. <laughs> okay, I want to talk about Scribner a little bit before we end the podcast. You have so many interesting things to say. We could talk for hours. But tell me how you use Scribner. You said that you just finished a novel that you that you exported from Scribner. You do a lot of research. Do you store that research in Scribner, or is it just all in your head? Um, mostly it's in my head, but it's also in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten notebooks around my desk now. Um, I I am terrible for grabbing a fountain pen and scribbling notes all the time while I'm thinking. And I have notebooks that I carry with me all the time when I'm out walking the dog. I've got notebooks which stay here by my desk all the time. I've got other notebooks that are in the kitchen where I've got another chair where I sit down when I want to get away from the desk. I carry things with me all the time. Yes, I do occasionally use Scrivener for notes as well. Um but I tend not to rely on websites for information because I found too often that, without being rude to anyone in particular, but very often you'll find the research is rubbish. And when you look up certain details on the internet, you can be directed to something that was clearly written by a spotty youth somewhere um, who has no knowledge of his subject whatsoever. So I tend to avoid that. If you, get, if you can find a book, uh, a book will have gone through the work by an author who is presumably fairly knowledgeable. It will have been edited. If it's from a reputable publisher, it will have been fact-checked by one or two fact-checkers. It will have been copy-edited by someone who understands the subject. It'll have been proofread by someone who knows the subject. So if you pick up a book, you can generally tell that you're getting something which has been checked. The likelihood of the facts being wrong in there are slightly less than you would if it's just something that's been thrown together and put on the internet. Sometimes, though, especially if I'm writing a modern day book, then I'll keep loads of links because I want people reading the book to see what they would see if they were looking at the internet. So it makes more sense that, that way. But the main thing for me with Scrivener is um, I tend to work in one-hour blocks of time, which is 1,000 words. 1,000 words an hour. Yeah. So I will think hard about what I'm going to do with my first scene I'm going to write, and that will end up about a thousand words. I'll write it, and then that becomes one document within Scrivener. And so I set up each scene 
as 1,000 word blocks, roughly. I mean, they never end up a thousand words, but they always start out that way. So I can write a thousand words in an hour, take a break for five, 10 minutes, make a coffee, whatever. And while I'm doing that, I'm thinking about what the next scene's going to be, and then write that scene down. So that way I can keep myself carrying on through the, the day. But with Scrivener, the great thing is that you have all of these on your left-hand side. I tend to split them into separate files, and my files tend to be days. So I'll add Monday, the 22nd of March. Days that you're writing, not days in the story. Days in the story. Ah, okay. So I, I tend to go through with my books being separated by distinct periods of time. So it'll be days and then possibly weeks if it's a longer book. But um, I'll tend to have each of my different scenes in that day, then each of my scenes in that day, then each of my scenes in that. But the great thing with Scrivener is you can then drag and drop and change. If you think, ah, oh, no, that I've given away too much in that scene. I don't want that scene there. I need to move that to two days later. Okay, you click on it, you drag it, you drop it two days later. Easy. Um, today, the first thing I had to do was before I sent off this latest book, Landscape of Murder, to my editor and agent, which I, I should just say that as a as a good computer bod, I managed to send the email forgetting to attach the book again. <laughs> but never mind, I got it off in the end. And um, the first job I had today was just running through and making sure that each of the main characters was consistent. So I don't go scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four. And scene four, I've actually duplicated what I'd already said in scene two. Or even worse, I've said in scene two something which I haven't given away until scene eight. So you've got to make sure that things are consistent and progressing nicely through the story. With Scrivener, all I do is I type in the name of the person I'm thinking of, and it presents me with every single scene in order that that person occur appears in. So I just read through quickly those scenes. And then as you go into the scene, it automatically highlights each of the occurrences of that name or that string of text. So you can run through really quickly and just make sure that everything's consistent. So I was able to do that this morning in, in three hours for six lead characters, each of the different scenes for them, everything else. If I was doing that on Word, that would have taken me a couple of days, maybe three. Yeah, It's, it's things like that. I started using Scrivener, I think. Um, I actually got it because David Hewson recommended it to me in about 2008 or so. It was somewhere early-ish 2000s. And I haven't been able to stop using it since. There's nothing I've found that is so efficient. It's quick. It's easy. It's got infinitely more um, than I need to worry about in terms of power and uh, flexibility. But I don't care. I don't use all of the things I need in it. But I don't use all the things I need in this lovely Apple computer I've got sitting in front of me now. I, it, it has spreadsheets. I don't need spreadsheets. I don't use spreadsheets. That doesn't mean the computer itself in front of me is not ideally suited for my purposes as a really good word processor. Scrivener just makes it fly. One thing I want to ask you about is dialogue, which is something that you have to balance very carefully in historical fiction. And not only... But all fiction, isn't it? Well, but I mean, in, in terms of you're writing something that's 800 years ago, so people didn't speak the English that we speak now. Uh, how do you choose? Do you do you come across yourself using words and say, wait a second, that word couldn't be there. They couldn't have been eating tomatoes in the 14th yeah. century, for example. Oh, I'm, I'm very careful about vegetables. I've got several books on um, the types of plants that people would have had. 
But yeah, it is a, ma- a major problem. A good friend of mine, Ian Mawson, used to talk about his problems talking about hypnotism in the early 1200s because hypnotism was not a word that was known. So he thought, I'll use mesmerism. That was Mesmer, a 19th century Frenchman. So it's always problematic. I once had a delightful, fairly lengthy letter from a lady in Canada who was saying that she really enjoyed my book. She loved my book all the way through till um, about page 60 when I started talking about a posse chasing after a guy. Posse comes from posse comitatus from the statutes of Winchester 1285. You know, <laughs> it was authentic. Then again, um, I don't write in colloquial English as it would have been used because people wouldn't understand it. There's a famous case in the 1200s of a fight in Exeter High Street, and it started because there were two peasants in the market who got into a fight because one was an Exeter man, one was from outside of Exeter, possibly only from about six or seven miles, and they didn't understand what each other was saying, so they got into a fight. So two uh, ecclesiastics turned up to try to calm things down. One was a Dominican, one was a canon from the um, Exeter Cathedral. They didn't understand the same language of Latin, and they certainly didn't understand the Devon dialect, so they got involved. And so some guards were sent down from Rougemont Castle, some of the men-at-arms from the castle. And that was when the full-scale riot started, because they were French-Norman speaking. So... Yeah, you you cannot possibly write a book authentically as it would have been because it'll just be incomprehensible. And anyway, yeah, if you're going to be authentic, I'd have to handwrite each copy of every book on vellum, and it would have to be hand stitched. <laughs> well, you can't be authentic. <laughs> I once read something that surprised me. Someone said, "Well, how come they don't ever drink tea in Shakespeare's plays?" It's because tea didn't come to England until <laughs> sixty, seventy years after he died, and we we don't think about these basic things like potatoes. They didn't have potatoes back then. Yeah, the, you know all these things that, and and I think. You probably, you had that woman who wrote about Posse, but you probably have lots of people who write in to say, you said this, but that has to be wrong. And I'm guessing you're generally right, given the amount of research you do? Yes. And it seems very rare nowadays, to be fair, that the one thing that I, and I know my colleagues as medieval murderers, uh, we always get into a slight discussion about his horses. How far would a horse go in a day? The king had a series of messengers at the time. Um, there were two groups. One was uh, on foot and the other group was on horseback. And they could travel the same distance every day. Because, yes, a horse could theoretically go further, but it also needs to rest and it needs to eat. And it then needs to rest after eating. So you've got this thing about how far could a horse ride. Well, you know, they could ride enormous distances if there were relays set up and they could do 60 miles in a day, but they'd have to rest for a week after that because that would nearly kill them. And the the rider, the messenger, could then hop onto a different horse. And so you could have people traveling enormous distances, but generally that's the most difficult that things get. I mean, when it comes down to stuff, I mean, I've discussed uh, building, making buildings, I've discussed making swords. I've discussed all kinds of things, but it's all based on actual research. Michael, I like to ask my guests to recommend a book to our listeners. What are you reading recently or what sort of book has caught your eye recently that you think our listeners would enjoy? 
I would say the book that I've just put down, which is Quartered Safe Out Here by George MacDonald Fraser. It's his autobiography of his time during the Burma campaign at the back end of the Second World War. And it's easily the best depiction of, um, he describes it, the last Edwardian army. I think he's probably about right. It's a wonderful story. And it actually kicked me off when I first read it into writing my trilogy about the Hundred Years' War which was basically about a platoon of archers going through all the major battles of that period. But Quartered Safe Out Here by George MacDonald Fraser. Absolutely superb book. Michael Jex, thank you for joining me. I'll remind listeners the Templar series. There are only 32 titles so far. So <laughs> how many more coming? One, two, three, Another ten. one written. Another one written? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Michael, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. Scrivener.